my wife had come home and she goes, what is going on with you? She could see my face and I'd been crying all day and I'd been outside drinking beer and shooting targets. And I said, you don't know what it's like to be in my brain. I just want my brain to stop. And I pulled the gun and put it under my chin and pulled the trigger. And these tough guys can come out and prove that it's not weakness of any kind. It's a sickness or a disorder. And I remember going into Dr. Saw and I said, is this what it feels like to be normal? I had no gauge on what normal would be because I struggled with it most of my life. Here we go. We got a big one for you today on Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. Today I'm joined by Clint Malarchuk. Welcome to Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast, where we talk to experts from around the world about PTSD, financial stress, sleep, mind-body connection, addiction, depression, fitness, and more. You will hear from others who have struggled, overcame obstacles, and continue to thrive. This is where you will learn the tools and resources you need to have a healthy mind and a healthy life. So we've got an exciting promo for all the Mental Edge Lifestyle podcast listeners out there. We teamed up with True Local. True Local is an online meat delivery service that connects you to high-end locally sourced products delivered right to your doorstep across Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia. They ship overnight on dry ice, so your box will stay frozen during delivery, even if you're not home when your box arrives. Their customizable plans are commitment-free, so you can skip, pause, or cancel at any time. No strings attached. Check out truelocal.ca and enter promo code MENTALEDGE10 for a discount on your first box. Clint Malarchuk is a former NHL goalie and coach, author, husband, father, cowboy, and mental health advocate. Clint nearly died on three separate occasions, one of which occurred on live TV during the first period of an NHL game when he took a skate blade to the neck. Let's just dive right into this interview. We're talking all about mental health, his hockey career, his mindset, and how he's helping others live a healthier life mentally. So without further ado, Clint Malarchuk. I'm sitting down with Clint Malarchuk, which is a huge honor for me, former NHL goaltender, joining me on Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. So obviously, thank you, Clint, for taking the time out of your day. And I think best place to start, let's go right into childhood. What was childhood like for you growing up in Grand Prairie, Alberta? Well, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know what's going on, really. Uh, I didn't feel I looked at other kids and I thought, wow, they seem a lot happier than, than I do. Definitely had some depression but mostly anxiety over the top but what's kind of important I guess is my dad was an abusive alcoholic so did that cause my anxiety depression or was I really kind of mentally ill at that time and you know I look back and and I think well I don't know maybe one caused the other I'm not sure but I know I struggled as a kid you know and, and I learned about with mental illness too it can kind of go dormant at times so I think I experienced times of you know, normalcy and other times of probably, uh, you know, I also had the OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder symptoms back then. I, I was very repetitive uh, on my working out. I was very obsessed about being a, an NHL goaltender, which is a good thing, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it would overtake my life away from the rink too. You know, contamination issues, things like that you normally would relate to people with OCD, you know, hand washing or showers and counting and things like that. I definitely can relate to certain parts of my life doing some of those things. But I think uh, just growing up, you have no measure. You, you don't know what normal is and you got no way to measure normal. You've struggled with it since an early age. So I just kind of rolled with everything and uh, the anxiety was overwhelming, though, at times. And, and I remember I'd often talk to my mom about it and say, my, my stomach it won't stop churning and those sort of issues. Yeah. And like you said, you just kind of went with it because I'm sure back then you didn't go to anyone at the time, right? As a kid. Oh, no. The only person I confided in it was my mother. I was, my mom and I are very close and I trusted her. She's the one person I could trust, especially with those type of issues. If you do start thinking, man, I don't feel like I'm a normal kid. Who do you talk to about that? Well, I had my mother. Wow. So then obviously later on in life, anxiety, depression, bouts with the alcohol abuse, and then obviously the OCD. And you mentioned with the OCD stuff and you, you know being repetitive, in a way that I guess helped you as you try to become or get into the NHL. So with all your like patterns and working out and right. 
certain ways you had to have your pads, you know, neatly laid out or whatever it was. So can we just talk about like the OCD a little bit further and why do you want to be a goalie as well? well? I'll answer that first. My dad was a goalie and, you know, don't get me wrong. My dad was an abusive alcoholic, but he was also a great person. It was the alcohol that, you know, we've all heard those stories just that alcohol and, you know, and it's a progressive disease. So he got worse and worse over the years, but he was a goaltender. And then my big brother, he was seven years older and he was a goalie. So it was kind of in the family. Of course, with those two guys being goalies, I naturally wanted to follow and be a goaltender, especially, you know, that's a big age gap where my brother was like a hero to me. You know, if I'm 12 and he's playing junior hockey or his first year as a pro, you know, I'm certainly looking up to that person, my big brother. So that's kind of how that evolved. And, and the OCD, I really, I, you know, I say this in a lot of my public uh, speaking events, uh, and I was spanked a little bit by a, a psychologist once saying, that's not right to say. And well, I don't know if it's right to say or not. I feel it was the truth that OCD helped me get to the NHL because I was obsessed with it. And the other thing about my brother, he had the God-given skill. I mean, quick as a cat. I mean, he was just a real gifted uh, goaltender. And I didn't feel like I was that level as far as the natural talent. So I felt like I had to outwork everybody. And that's where the OCD, you know, repetitions and counting got to do a hundred and not 70 or not 60. It's got to be a hundred. So I really pushed myself and, you know, yes, I, I mentioned, I went through the other stages of OCD, especially the camp contamination thing, but ultimately I was able to funnel my OCD into a positive thing, which was hockey. Yeah. That's what I was going to go to next is you pretty much well, I read your book, The Crazy Game, and I've actually read it twice. Oh, wow. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I went back in kind of when I was going to, you know, obviously do this interview to do some research. And then I found myself, I was like, oh, I'm just going to reread this because it, it <laughs> right away again, because your life has been incredible. So the OCD stuff, it helped you, like you said, but it also, I'm sure it hindered you quite a bit as it got like, you know, a little bit deeper rooted. What really took it over the top was my injury in Buffalo trauma. I didn't know this. And this is, you know, 30 years ago or whatever it's been. We've come a long way since then. But I had no idea that trauma can, if you're predisposed to certain things like mental illness, a major trauma, like almost losing your life, like I did almost lose mine, it can really trigger your mental illness into the real deal <laughs> over the top. And that's kind of where things really spiraled uh, for me after the injury. Yeah, that night, March 22nd, 1989 against St. Louis. So you get cut with the skate from Steve Tuttle. And then, like you said, the, in your book, and like you just said, now the OCD and anxiety and insomnia really, really take off. But, but you return 10 days after this happens. So first of all, how do you even return 10 days after? And what's going through your mind when that well, happened? That was my mindset, you know, growing up the way I did, you know, you get bucked off a horse, you get right back on. That's what they say, you know, don't let the fear settle in because it's just going to get worse. So immediately get back as quick as you can. Uh, so I transfer that over to coming back from that injury against doctor's advice. I mean, some doctors were saying, you know, take the year off. Some said, you know, maybe you should retire. A lot of people are saying you'll never be the same goalie again because of what happened and almost dying. So I just took that as a challenge and really tried to get back. As soon as the stitches came out, I was able to physically go back in the net. And, you know, I don't know if I'd have done it the same way, you know, 30 years later. Uh, Richard Zednick, when he cut his jugular vein, what, 10 years ago, you know, I heard he had counseling, the team, players, coaches, uh, families of the players all had counseling or at least offered to him. And back in, when it happened to me, no counseling was offered, and I didn't think of it either. I just thought, get back as quick as you can. And it ended up being, uh, like I said, I don't know if I'd do it the same way. I certainly, today I would have had counseling or some, some sort of therapy for the PTSD part, uh, and then maybe return as quick as I you know, could. But back then, I just thought, you know, nothing was offered for me, so I was kind of out on my own just to make my own decision. And that's what I did. I chose to, you know, get back in there. In some ways, it was smart because I really remember coming back. It was the next training camp. I came back in 10 days. I got through the season. It was the next training camp. People in the media were still doubting me. And I thought, wow, I came back, you know, didn't I put this to bed? <laughs> and it was the next season. They kept saying, oh, how are you doing? Are you going to be okay? You know, can you play? And I'm like, well, I thought we went through this last season when I came back. So it was the next season where things really got difficult for me. I think the love and support that I had from the people in Buffalo 
and upstate New York, you know, I was kind of hero worshipped and I rode that love and support and adrenaline, I think, through the season and through part of the summer. It was the next season, I think, when things settled down as far as the adrenaline and working my blood supply, getting it back up and all the things I was going through probably without even knowing it. It was the next year where things really started to slide down. Did it ever, because obviously hockey, the NHL is, is a business. So did it ever cross your mind? Like, like I need to get back on the ice because I could be out, lose my job. Because especially as a goalie, right? They, well, a lot of people don't realize, and it, it wasn't a big factor, but it did factor into, I was on the last year of my contract. And, you know, we're talking March 22nd, the uh, accident happened 10 days later, you know, we're almost into April and then the playoffs. So I didn't have a lot of time to really recuperate. Because I felt like I had to show the team, the management, that I was capable of coming back and playing and being the same goalie to get a new contract. Yeah, so that right there is tough. Not that you even had a chance to deal with it because back then, you know, you didn't know any better, like you said, but you got to get back on the ice and, and, you know, prove people wrong last year contract. What was it like, though, for the trainer that helped you? And what about Steve Tuttle? I had heard Steve Tuttle and some of the St. Louis Blues were having nightmares like I was and flashbacks and that. So I reached out to Steve and, and, you know, kind of just said, Hey, it was an accident first of all. So don't think that I thought you did it on purpose. And that's very, very true. But you know, it was kind of refreshing to know that I wasn't the only one struggling with uh, the trauma, although it did happen directly to me everybody around that was there. And if, you know, teammates, uh, there were some teammates of mine that really, really struggled after. This all came out later on, practically years later. I'm talking like when I wrote my book and guys have read it. And I just did a thing in Buffalo a month ago, kind of a reunion. And some of the players came up to me and go, you know, man, that really screwed me up. Some of them said that they read my book and they couldn't believe. uh, I was actually a pretty normal acting goaltender. And I remember Rick Vive telling me, he goes, man, I would never have guessed that you were struggling with anything. That He goes, the only thing I thought was a little weird is you spent four or five hours in the weight room after practice. <laughs> and I did. Well, that's that obsession too, right? You got to be the best. Well, that's the OCD. Yeah, yep, absolutely. So, and you've mentioned a few times like early on in our conversation. So it wasn't until really after that accident. So that's kind of your near-death experience, one. And then number two, after you come back and then a year later, that's when the insomnia really kicks in. And I know there's a story, you went 10 days. Yeah. Yeah, that was the beginning of the real, I guess back then PTSD wasn't a set of words, but that's basically, I was experiencing uh, PTSD. It was the next season, started to have these uh, panic attacks. The OCD got really, really bad. It was hard for me to leave the house. You're still not diagnosed with anything, right? No, no, nothing. But now it's getting where I couldn't sleep because I'd have that flashback. I'd see that skate come up. And what I did... If I fell asleep, I'd have that nightmare. And it wasn't just a bad dream. It was like, you know, your heart rate is elevated, pounding heart. You're perspiring. You're sitting straight up in bed, grabbing your neck. So you're really reliving the trauma and not knowing anything about trauma or any of these things. But to try and sleep, I would try to sleep in a chair just to keep from going into a deep sleep and dreaming. It's kind of like sleeping on an airplane. You bobble around. You don't really dream. And so that's what I did for 10 days. And then, uh, and that led up to uh, me going to a Super Bowl party at Pat LaFontaine's house. He was our captain. I'm not doing good. I'm sleep deprived, panic attacks, depression, hard to leave the house. I didn't stay at the party very long. I went home and I, I was playing with a broken thumb and I had some painkillers and I was going to take a couple because my thumb was throbbing. And I noticed it said, do not drink with alcohol. We'll make you drowsy. And I'm like, right on. <laughs> so I took a few extra painkillers and drained a bottle of scotch and my heart stopped. So I wake up in the hospital, I guess it was the next morning, and the hospital psychiatrist, thinking it might have been a possible suicide attempt, wanted to talk to me. And I said, no, I, it's not suicide at all. I went on to tell my struggles and panic attacks and flashbacks and nightmares, not sleeping. So that was when I got a diagnosis finally of you know mental illness and that started a two almost a three-year period and again we're going back where medications aren't where they are today therapies counseling we've come so 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 far now and back then the medications i was taking none were working 
and you go on it for six weeks. And if it doesn't work, you try another one for six weeks. And then you got that every time you go on a new one, you got that hope. And, and then you got the letdown because it didn't work. I was seeing specialists, you know, different doctors, counseling therapies and constantly changing medications, trying to get the right one to, to help me. And I eventually ended up getting sent to the minors because my play was awful. I couldn't concentrate. Uh, anxiety was a big issue. So anyways, I get sent to the minors and that's where I got to a specialist and he was like the world renowned guy for this. <laughs> and he was absolutely brilliant. And he's the one first time seeing me he goes, you know, it's a chemical imbalance and you're going to be fine. We're going to get you on the right medication to boost up your serotonin levels because that's what's uh, causing your problems. And he goes, it's like a diabetic. It's no different, just a different organ. No one really explained it that way to me, you know, and you start thinking, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe my brain is so screwed up. It's not normal. So you, you have all these fears. And he was very quieting for me and, and confident guy. And uh, he got me on the right medication and I did great for, for years on that medication. And you were also dealing with like back issues, playing through back problems and things like that. So what was it like to finally get under control? And now you're out in the media about your OCD at this point, right? Yeah. So was that still a lot for you to take on though, like mentally having to talk about it? Because again, back then, you, nobody really comes out. Well, the, the reason I went public about it because of the uh, hospital, the overdose on the pills and the alcohol People were saying, oh, he's probably a drug addict. And there was all these rumors going around. And I thought, I've never taken a, you know, a illegal drug in my life. And I wasn't even drinking that much then. I was starting to. And so I had to quash those rumors because it really kind of insulted me. And that's why I went public and said, no, I've been diagnosed with mental illness. And that's one of the problems that I have and have to work through. And now that you're on the meds, like you said, was it like... Because I often talk to people that, you know, have been through or dealing with anxiety, depression, when they finally get the right help, whether it's counseling or the right meds, right. a lot of them like will say, oh, I went outside and like the sun was actually shining when the well, sun. Was yeah. Like that. Well, that, you know, in the miners, I was in San Diego, California and, you know, little winter, beautiful weather. And I remember it was week six on the medication. I'm driving to see Dr. Stahl, my, my psychiatrist. And I went, Wow the temperature here is awesome. Look at the sunshine. Like that's how deep and dark my depression was that I didn't even acknowledge or, or didn't even notice the great weather in the middle of winter in, in San Diego. And I remember going into Dr. Saw and says, is this what it feels like to be normal? I had no gauge on what normal would be because I struggled with it most of my life. And so now we fast forward, you go about 15 years, you say, of being fine, meds are all working. And of course, we learned that you got kind of, I guess, used to the meds. Well, my body got immune to it over that period of time. Right. So now we're into 2007, let's say. You kind of hit your lowest point. I think you're the Blue Jackets consultant, right? Yep. And paranoia kicks in. Yeah. Obviously, I was spiraling, you know, the, the meds weren't working. Richard Zednick, about that same time, cut his jugular vein in Buffalo and being with an NHL hockey team like I was, well, first of all, when you're in sports, I just thought I'd take these pills and I'll be fine the rest of my life. And I didn't even keep seeing my psychiatrist because I got back into playing and then coaching and moving around. So I just kept getting my prescription renewed from the team doctor. And that's how I was able to go so long. And I wasn't checking in. I, I had no idea. I just thought you just keep taking your meds and you'll be fine. And over time, uh, the body gets immune to them. Then Zednik cut his jugular vein in Buffalo. So I was very media accessible with the blue jacket. So I was reliving all these, you know, emotions again. And having undiagnosed PTSD, I didn't know that, you know, talking about this over and over, uh, reliving it again, and the combination meds aren't working. That's when I started to really spiral again downward. And that's when I began my illustrious drinking career because there's a huge correlation between addiction and mental illness. And I, I can speak for myself. It's because beer for me worked. It was like my medication. If I was depressed, it would pick me up. If I was anxious, it would calm me down. If my OCD was starting to flare up, I, I, a few beers. And, but the problem with that is a few beers uh, turned to, you know, two turned to four to eight to 12. And I'm drinking 20, 30 beers a day just to get through a day. And it, it was, it was pretty pretty dark time for me. The depression was really bad. The OCD came back really bad. 
my wife's trying to get me into a doctor. And you know, sometimes that can be months waiting. And in the meantime, I just spiraling down and uh, having suicidal thoughts. The anxiety was overwhelming. And that's what led up to the gunshot where I was just in such a bad way. And I, you know, it's funny, I, I've never met a suicide survivor yet that isn't grateful that they, you know, weren't successful at it. You know, look back, I was like, wow, how grateful am I that I lived through that? But leading up to that gunshot, I mean, I was in a bad way. And to tell you the truth, it, it wasn't like a premeditated suicide, although I was having suicidal thoughts. I didn't write a note or anything. It was a very impulsive move. My wife had come home and she goes, what, you know, what is going on with you? She could see my face and I'd been crying all day and I'd been outside drinking beer and shooting targets. And I said, you don't know what it's like to be in my brain. I just want my brain to stop. And I pulled the gun and put it under my, uh, my chin, my throat area and, and pulled the trigger and uh, didn't even know if it had a bullet in it, you know? And when it went off, I didn't lose consciousness. I went, holy cow, what did I just do? And uh, I told my wife, uh, you know, tell the police it's an accident. I was shooting targets, you know, because I didn't want, if it's, if I was labeled as a attempted suicide, I'd probably lose my NHL job, my NHL career. So that's why I wanted my wife to lie. You know, basically I just thought I'll never get another job in the NHL with this kind of record. And so obviously I, I lived and I got the help I needed. After I got out of the hospital, they sent me to a treatment center that deals with what they call dual diagnosis, meaning mental illness and addiction. And so I had to deal with these two things, but that started a journey of, they were trying to give me this label of PTSD. And to me, I was very, very offended by that because they were saying, well, that injury in Buffalo probably started this whole spiral years ago. And I was like, no, 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 I came back in 10 days. I was a hero, they loved me there. You know, I was kind of like cocky, uh, ego, proud that I came back in 10 days. And now they're telling me you got PTSD. And I'm like, no, no, no. So anyways, it took me about two months. I was in there at that facility for six months and it took about two months for me to actually buy in on the PTSD. Yeah. I claim my mental illness and a lot of those things and my over medicating with booze, but I didn't want to claim the PTSD. And once I did, I, I went to work on the therapy and came out of it. How good did it feel to finally say like, oh, you know what? I do have this. I have a mental illness. I have PTSD. I have all of this. And was it really as bad? You know, you probably thought in your head, people are going to look at me differently, all this stuff. But was it really that bad when you finally said, nope, this is me. This is what I have. This is who I am. You put it perfect, you know, how you stated that. And that's kind of the attitude I had. I didn't have a, a lot of shame. I know a lot of people struggle with that because it, we're perceived as weak with mental illness. And it's not a weakness. It's a... Uh, disorder. It's no different, like I said, than diabetes. It's just a different organ. And so I had some education on that, not much on the PTSD side yet, but on the mental illness side, I had no problem claiming that. As you just stated, you know, it's me, it's part of who I am. It's one of, you know, some people have born with other defects or whatever, and that's the cards that I was dealt. And I was kind of proud that I would, had been fairly public about and interviewed a lot about my struggles. And I guess the great thing about that is uh, if you do an interview, TV or radio or uh, newspaper, whatever, you get feedback. Usually people reach out. And I was uh, overwhelmed by the amount of people that reached out and said, oh, my God, you're my twin. <laughs> Thank you. They were thanking me for coming out and, you know, trying to help them, I guess. Yeah, it's so, it's so wild. The more like I dive deeper into this, the mental health stuff and just talking like my own stories and just talking to people in passing and guests, obviously, the amount of people that say that, oh, I had so many people come up to me and say, thank you. Thank you for yeah. sharing this. Because, you know, at some point, we're all going to struggle with something, some more than others. Your story is incredible. It gives you fuel, though, to, to hear the feedback and it keeps you motivated to keep going public. And, you know, eventually it led me to writing a book. You know, it motivated me to to write a book. I thought, you know, if a few newspaper articles or interviews can get that kind of feedback, a book would probably reach a lot of people and help them. Yeah. Let's talk about that process for you too. So you start writing the book like 2014 comes out in 2015, but it was tough for you. Was it not? You know, I'd, I'd been to the treatment center. I'd been through the therapy. I'd, I'd done the work and the counseling and got my medication right. And so I thought I was pretty confident. I was cautioned by one of my counselors saying, you know, 
be careful because this is going to be tough. It may open up some wounds, some old wounds that we've already tried to heal over. And, and I'm like, nah, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. You know? And uh, she was right. It was harder than I thought. There was a lot of tears, a lot of emotion, you know, going back and reliving basically my whole life. It was autobiography. So I start with my childhood. And to do that was, you know, damaging, really. But not to me, you know, I'm tough. I'm fine. I'm fine. And it ended up coming to bite me in the butt near the end of the book. You know, I'd relapsed into drinking again because, you know, I I talk about the incident uh, that we are working on and that part of the book and go over it and then a couple others and whatever. And I got to a point where uh, the insomnia came back again. And so I used alcohol to sleep. And once I, before the book was finished, I went to rehab on my own. Basically, I just said, you know what, I'm, I don't want to go down this road again. So I went for a 30 day kind of checkup, clean up, uh, get my feet under me type of thing, because I knew what was going on. And that was a smart thing for me to do. So the publisher was trying to get a hold of me. And of course, when you're in rehab, it's anonymous. There's no way you can find out where. And so they, they called my wife and said, Clint's not picking up his phone. He won't return messages. Well, she goes, well, he's in rehab. And they were super supportive, Harper and Collins. It overwhelmed me. They said, well, just get better. And I said, well, what do we do? The book wasn't finished. Do we write about my relapse? And they said, that's totally up to you. And I did because I felt, well, the book's not done. This is still my journey and a big part of the journey. So I wrote about my time in rehab there. I wrote a lot about my time in the first rehab. And it was a choice I had to make, and I'm glad I did make it. You know, I, I took the right choice. And as hard as it was, because it's almost like, now you're feeling, ah, oh, people are going, you went six months, and now you screw up again. Come on, you know, you're a failure, that sort of thinking. And I said, well, like you stated, it's part of who you are. It's part of what's gone on in your life. So you've been open and honest about everything in your book so far. So continue. I'm sure now, in a way, that part, I guess, was therapeutic for you, right? Talking about- um, people always ask me, it was writing the book therapeutic. And I would say no, absolutely not, because it caused me a relapse. That's how tough it was. You know, had I been smart about it, I probably would have done it through my counselor more, talked more. But you know what? I was like cocky about it. No, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Right. So, you know, it wasn't therapeutic at all. It was probably counterproductive. And what's therapeutic now is, as you and I just kind of discussed a bit, is the feedback that you get. I mean, I couldn't believe the feedback from the book. I put my email in the back of the book and I was getting flooded with uh, emails and, and people basically just thanking me and high profile people, NHL players, other pro sports, like and very prominent people that have read the book and said, thank you. I thought I was the only one, which was kind of overwhelming for me. I, I went, wow, there's a lot of Clint Malarchuk's out there, a lot. And, you know, when you're mentally ill, you're like, even when I was at my worst, I was like, well, I'm one of very, very few people that struggle. And then you find out, well, there's more people. And then you go, yeah, but they're not as bad as me because I'm pretty screwed up. And then, you know, the book made me realize, well, there's a lot of people, a lot of people that struggle more than anybody would ever think. Yeah. And like we've touched on, it's it's massive how many people probably come out. And especially like you're a big public figure, played in the NHL. You're looked at, like, especially in the area you played, tough, like you tough as they come. And again, reading your book, your fighting stories and stuff like that. But for you to open up and I guess vulnerability and talking about it is so big when it comes to mental health. That's the thing. It's still perceived as a weakness. And, you know, I look back now, I always thought I was mentally weak because I was so anxious and pressure of, of the NHL and everything. And I thought, I mean, I handled it and people on the outside thought I was very, very calm and in control for a goalie. But on the inside, it was a three ring circus in, inside my body, you know, and that stigma of, of the weakness part. And I always use our military. I know in the U.S. it was up to 22 suicides a day from our Afghanistan and Iraq veterans. That's a lot, 22 a day. And these are the most mentally tough people in the world to go and do that job that they do. So they go over there, they're mentally tough and they come back and they're injured mentally or they you know, develop PTSD. So there's your point right there. The most mentally tough people, first responders, same thing. And they develop PTSD and they're mentally tough. 
And, and like I said, I look back and I think, man, I must have been double. Somebody mentioned this to me. They said, you must have been double mental tough because you were dealing with the pressures of being an NHL goalie and mental illness and doing it alone in silence. So what changed too now? 2015, like you said, was rough when the, you know, writing the book and when the book comes out. But now I think you're talking about it now more than ever. Like you don't, you have like everything under control, it seems, or do you still have your days? Oh God. You know what? I've gone through times where, you know, months of just doing great and then I'll hit a, a little bit of a skid. So, you know, you're kind of humbled by that going, oh shoot. You know, and, and for me, I recently went through a big insomnia uh, deal. I was only sleeping an hour or two a night. And another thing that's important that people should understand is their body remembers trauma. So I was on a road trip one time public speaking out in Ontario, and I hadn't slept in two nights, not a wink. And I wasn't tired. I was just like amped. And then I realized because I'd been taught this in rehab that your body remembers a trauma. I go, oh, shoot, it's March, whatever it was. It was very close to my March 22nd date of jugular vein. And I went, oh, no wonder I haven't slept. And once I said, okay, that's acceptance and, you know, just roll with it. The next night I slept. So I do have to be conscious of October 7th and uh, March 22nd, around those dates of the anniversaries of trauma. Yeah, I was going to touch on that earlier with the traumas. Like you've obviously had so many traumatic events happen. And as you speak about it, and obviously you wrote a book about it, you remember it you know, so well. And I was the same. My father passed away when I was 16 years old in front of me. And I remember every, like I gave him CPU, yeah. but I remember everything I did that morning and even a few days before that. But I, you know, I can't remember what I did yesterday sometimes. So yeah, it's, it's wild what the body does. So you just have to obviously be aware. If you had a message, I know we touched on a lot of stuff, but like one, you know, main message about mental health or that you can give to people out there struggling, what would it be? Well, first of all, get over this stigma. And a lot of the tough guys, like first responders and military guys that I, lack of a better term, worked with, once they realize it is a sickness and not a weakness, and that's Michael Landsberg, he coined that phrase, you know, sick, not weak. Once we're able to, you know, get our head around that and go, oh, really? It's like diabetes. It's no different, just a different organ. Then we're able to go, okay, I'm not crazy. I have maybe a chemical imbalance or some trauma that I need to work through. And that's when people go, okay. So that's really what I try to tell people is, you know, it's, it's no different than any other disorder. It just happens to be with the brain. And it's a stigma that we just have to get out of and get the help that we need. And so for me, that's the important thing, especially with men, you know, being that high testosterone type jobs and just in society with men, they're supposed to be tough. So once you get over that stigma that this is not about toughness, it's about a disorder, then people seem to get help. It's a great message. What you're doing is, is so impactful and, and your story is obviously super inspiring. Or You have so many different things and just a, an interesting life altogether. And I have to talk to you about hockey, being in the game for so long. What was the So you're drafted in 1981, fourth round, 74th overall to Quebec. Do you still have that one of your Quebec? I love those uniforms they had. Those were unreal. Yeah, they were nice. <laughs> I, I do have all my jerseys. I got my NHL All-Star all jersey and every uh, NHL team I played on. So Quebec, Washington, Buffalo, I got the jerseys. When did you know, like, I can make a go at this? I can make the pros? You know, when you're a kid and then a teenager and then you're in junior hockey or college or whatever, you know, that's your ultimate dream and that's your goal. But the realistic part is, okay, am I good? You know, how many people have, you know, the skill and this and that, and there's the competition and the percentage of guys that make it and all these things you run through your head. But I think with my OCD, I was pretty determined. Put it this way, my, my mentality was I'm going to do everything I can to be the best that I can be. And if I don't make it, well, then I can look in the mirror and say, you know what? It wasn't meant to be. You gave it your all. When I first realized, I, I'd say my first NHL training camp, you know, I'm 20 years old, my first NHL camp in Quebec, and I was lights out in camp. I had a great training camp. I was better than the veterans. You know, I was the best goalie in camp. And I was like, holy smokes. I was even going, wow. <laughs> and that's when I kind of went, you know what? I can do this. I got a lot of confidence from that training camp, being able to outperform established NHL goalies. The era you played in, like your draft class, John Van Beesbrook, I was a huge fan of him, Chelios, Grant Fuhrer, Ron Francis. 
Yeah. Dale Howard, was he first that year? I believe so. Yeah. So it's crazy the guys that you played with. Who was the hardest guy to stop? Well, you know, it, obviously Gretzky and Lemieux were different class. If Mario had a breakaway on you, with his long reach, he could DQ pretty easy, but he also could just snipe one under the bar. You know, those Oilers, I remember playing against the Oilers when they were winning their cups, Gretzky, Curry, Messier, Anderson, Coffee. I mean, and if you were the starting goaltender, you'd just go, man, I hope I make it through this game without getting pulled because they had such firepower. So that was always a, and being Alberta boy, you're going back home. And if you won the game six to five, you probably had a, a decent game you know, letting in five goals. It was definitely high scoring. Oh, that was crazy. Do you like the way the game's going now? Not a lot of fighting, more finesse? I do and I don't. You know, I'm a dinosaur. I like fighting. You know, I feel it's it, it was part of my makeup, part of how I was brought up. Uh, the toughness aspect, don't lay on the ice. That's why I got up and skated off the ice with my jugular vein. You know, I, I was taught, don't lay on the ice. If it's not your legs, they can work. Get off the ice or get to the bench or whatever. When they started to change these rules after that lockout, you know, I'm working in the NHL and I'm in the press box watching a game and there'd be a penalty called and I'm there with the GM, assistant GM, one of the assistant coaches, you know, all hockey minds. And we're all looking at each other going, what was the penalty? Did you see it? And it was just because the guy held a stick parallel to a guy and that was considered hooking or interference. And so it was really, I was like not liking that part of it at all when you can't even tell as a fan or a coach what a penalty is and I know the players it was a big adjustment for them too I like the fact now that the small guys with speed and skill can play in the NHL and they don't have to be a pugilist or even a tough guy at all there was the rules now protect these type of players so that part I like about it I'm growing with it put it that way I love the game the skill the speed of it now that the small guys, skilled guys can play. So it, it's grown on me a lot. I think it's obviously better, but I still have that dinosaur mentality on, you know, fighting and, and those sort of things. But although now with, uh, you know, the things I've gone through and trauma and, and meeting a lot of guys and being a mental health advocate, you know, I, I take it to heart when we have suicides from these former players. And we've had a lot considering in the last 10 years or so, you know, that's probably the CTE, the brain trauma that uh, from concussions. And I look at that and, and a lot of these guys were enforcers. Most of them are enforcers. So, you know, they got the CTE and uh, th that's from fighting. Being a mental health advocate and everything, I'm kind of glad that there's not as much of that now because we don't want our retired hockey players dying because they played hockey. Yeah. Like you said, same stance as you. There, there is a, still, I think, a place for it, but it is obviously a tougher subject now with more athletes, uh, obviously, taking their but, life. You know, recently I was in Saskatchewan uh, speaking in uh, Saskatoon and Regina, and Bugard's family had reached out to me before they heard I was coming up there. And Derek's brother, Aaron, you know, was uh, wanting to meet me and talk. And we had a, just a great, great time. It was really nice, but I guess they saw something in me that related maybe what they were going through, having lost a loved one. And the hockey, obviously, being a commonality. So yeah, it's good to be out there and meeting people and saying, hey, you're not alone, brother, or, you know, all those things. One thing that I kind of forgot to touch on, about a year ago, I started to have the nightmares again, the flashbacks. And I immediately, because I've learned so much, I can't spiral down. Uh, I immediately got a counselor and this counselor did a thing called EMDR. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's called eye movement desensitization reprocessing as scientifically proven that uh, some about the left, right, going back and forth with the brain, your eye movement. So this was basically an eye movement thing where I'd follow a wand back and forth while we talked about trauma. You know, I did uh, my childhood trauma doing the EMDR. I did my jugular vein trauma. And then I did my suicide attempt trauma and it, it worked. I quit having the nightmares. So that's one thing people with PTSD especially uh, might want to check out EMDR. I mean, you Google EMDR, it comes up right away and it's scientifically proven. So people are struggling, maybe check that out. Yeah, I'll be sure to, I'll put that to make it easier for people too. And our show notes, they can easily uh, look it up. What other stuff are you doing? Like, cause people always ask me like, you know, when I give my talks, I talk about, you know, uh, everything I went through, but then my talk changes about halfway through on what I have to do today to keep my balance. And uh, obviously medication, 
can't go 15 years without checking in with my psychiatrist. I got into mindfulness and meditation, which really calms me down. If I'm having a, a squirrely time in the day, I can take 10, 15 minutes and take a time out and do a little meditation, get grounded. Working out, I still work out. I got a gym in my barn and the endorphin release, I guess they say is, is really healthy. Counseling, obviously, you know, the EMDR, I immediately got on top of something when I started to feel like I was sliding. And being a service, as you know, we touched on, you know, to tell your story and people for maybe the first time go, wow, it's okay. This guy was tough. He played in the NHL. He rodeoed. He boxed. And it's got nothing to do with toughness. I can come out and get help, you know. So the public speaking, that's more therapeutic to me than the, uh, than the writing of the book. Did you find it tough when like the phone stopped ringing just from hockey in general, where it was goaltending coaching to playing, like finding like that identity, a lot of athletes yeah. feel like they get lost with that. Well, I was very fortunate because I went from as a player right into coaching. And so, you know, I didn't have to like start at the minor hockey level or whatever. I, I went right into, and a lot of players do do that, but there's only a certain amount of jobs. So I was fortunate enough. It wasn't the minors but it was still pro. So I was able to make that transition. That was pretty easy. Getting out of hockey at the end, I was working on my book. I kind of had a goal in mind that the book would come out and I would be able to help people and speak. So I'm fortunate that way. Like I really was able to transition from player to coach and then into, you know, and, and believe it or not, I'm still part of the game because I do a hockey banquet here or I do, you know, I'm still known as an NHL player, former player, and people want to hear that story from somebody like me. And, you know, it's been pretty well documented through media, my story. So people are curious. And, and for me, that's, uh, it's very gratifying, put it that way. Yeah, I do miss hockey. I, I mean, I follow it still as close as anyone. But sometimes I go, man, I, I should be going to the rink right about now. <laughs> you know, but you don't. Yeah. In the NHL too, and you can probably speak to this, they're really taking a lot of steps. I think there's a lot of like addiction counselors like through the NHLPA now, like working with teams. Are they not implementing new programs and things like that for these players? Yes. People should understand that, you know, when a player, I, I saw Patrick Kane or not Patrick uh, uh, Kane in San Jose. Uh, oh, Vander Kane. Vander Kane. Uh, he got suspended like I think it was three games and his total loss of money was like, $112,000. So that $112,000, $100,000 will go to uh, helping players in, in, in need that need rehab or, or counseling or, you know, a treatment center, all these things. And I kind of work not with the NHL or NHLPA with that, but I do have uh, a couple of friends that are uh, kind of interventionists. And if somebody reaches out to me, and they feel that they need help with addiction or mental illness or both usually, I put them in touch with these people. And if they're NHL players, I tell them to get in, in touch with the Alumni Association because that's where we get the allocation of money to get these players help, These form, usually former players, but there are current players. I saw somebody just came back from rehab in Montreal, I believe. I uh, can't remember his name, but he was... Ottawa, opening. Bobby Ryan. There you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah. That's why I'm asking. I, I figured you'd be like a perfect fit. Because I know LA started something with a former player. And I know Brian McGratton's doing something with the Flames. Yeah. yeah. Brent Mayer was the LA guy. Yeah. You know, another tough guy, big guy. McGratton, another tough guy, big guy, you know, that have struggled. So again, these tough guys can come out and prove that it's not weakness of any kind. It's a sickness or a disorder. Definitely. Uh, just quickly, too, I know your book was 2015, but it's two names, right? Because there's a name in the U.S. It's something different. You know that in Canada, it's a crazy game. And then they wanted to broaden the book and find a publisher in the U.S. And uh, the publisher in the U.S. didn't like the the word crazy. So they and I didn't at first. But at first, I was like, ah, you know what? I might get, uh, you know, using that word crazy might not be the social acceptable way to do it with the stigma. It might add to it. And. They said, you know how many times in the book you said, I thought I was crazy? <laughs> I said, well, no, but I said it a lot. And so we went with that. And the U.S. new publisher, they went with the uh, Matter of Inches. And, uh, you know, I didn't like that title. Still don't. 
but it sounds like a porn. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll make sure I put those in the show notes for everybody because if they haven't read your book in Canada or the U.S., they need to uh, definitely read it because, like I said, your, your life has been uh, unbelievable. You've survived so much and you, you keep fighting, which I think is the end message of this whole kind of conversation to people is, is do not give up. Keep pushing, keep fighting. Well, the thing is, I try and encourage people that, Ryan, is, you know, it took me three years and getting sent to the miners to finally get the right medication. And nowadays, we're way better, better medications. They work quicker. It's still a challenge. Some people can hit it right away. First visit to the doctor, first medication. And another thing people should be aware of, a lot of times, you don't have to stay on the medication the rest of your life. And that a lot of people fear that. Oh, I'm going to have to be. I know a lot of people that had to get through a a phase in their life and get their serotonin levels back to where they should be. And then they can go back off the medication. So I, I try to, you know, I'm doing these interviews and podcasts and that I try to give these uh, little tips and uh, I guess encouragement things out because I'm, I'm so involved with people now and I hear so many stories and I hear these things. Well, I don't want to take medication and I don't want to be reliant on medication my whole life. So I hear these fears of people and that's why I try to, put little notes out there in these interviews that people should be aware of. Absolutely. Where could people find you on social media? Or I have a website, malarchuk.com. It's the cowboy goalie. And that's probably the, the best way. I'm on Twitter, cmalarchuk. I'm on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, so I do all that. And I am not a very good social media guy. <laughs> I just, uh, I struggle technically and not great, but my wife is good and helps me with a lot of that. I, I do answer all my messages on Facebook or emails or through my website because I care. And uh, that's what it's there for. You know, I'm, if I'm not going to follow up, then why, why do it? Yeah, that's what's so great about yourself and a lot of people I'm talking to. And I get, uh, oh, who's coming on your podcast? I'm like, oh, Michael Landsberg. And then I got Chuck, and then I got Theo Fleury. And a few others like, oh, how'd you get them? How much? How? And I'm like, I just messaged them. Yeah. <laughs> like I got nothing to lose by messaging. And especially the stuff, the work you guys are doing, it's like, I'm sure they'll get back to me because that's. Well, well what I think when you're, you're dealing with mental illness and, and addictions, and like I say, it goes hand in hand most times. If you've walked a mile in our shoes, you tend to have a lot of compassion and empathy for people. So when you're asked to do an interview or podcast or, or something like that, you tend to jump right on top and say, yes, I'll do it. Because you understand, I know for me, I, I can speak for myself, like there's a lot of people that are still suffering in silence and in a lot of pain. So for them to hear this podcast or read my book or hear me speak or anything, I feel like I'm saving lives and I take it very seriously. So, you know, I never, never decline an interview or anything like that. Yeah, that's great being so accessible. and it, It's amazing. I do so many interviews and that, that when the interview is done, a lot of times we're off the air or whatever, and that interviewer will ask, will, will start talking about what he's gone through or she's gone through. They really relate to a lot of what I've gone through. And, and it just goes to prove that there's so many people that struggle. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm very, like, I'm open about all my struggles in the past. And I opened up to Michael Landsberg about some stuff that I hadn't shared before. Again, because it was, I think it was that safe, I felt safer talking to someone who's been through stuff like that, for whatever reason. But again, it just for people, just keep fighting, find, find that right tool, whether it's medication or therapy, right? mindfulness, working out, just, but keep fighting. I have a, one more question for you. Uh, and I'm really interested to see what you say, because uh, you have been through so much. At what moment of adversity are you most grateful for today? Well, I don't know if adversity would be the, the right answer with my answer. I still vividly remember driving to the doctor in San Diego at week six on the medication and noticing the weather and the depression had lifted, basically. That was a life moment for me because I was, is this really what it feels like to be normal? In one way, I was mad because I, I felt like I'd missed out on so much of, and maybe I could have been a better goalie had I not been dealing with all these issues. You know, So you got these kind of regretful madness, but then on the other, you're just so joyful that you're, you're out of that depression and that dark place and you're not OCD and all these things. That, so it's kind of like two sides to it, but adversity, I, I don't know. I've had so much, so many different points 
you know, clawing my way back, I guess. I, I don't know. I, I'm just very proud that I was able to play at the NHL level, dealing with what I was dealing with and with no help and doing it in silence. And, you know, the only person I ever confided in with any of this was my mother. And so, you know, I got through it and I give her a lot of credit to this day. She was my rock. You're very strong for everything you've been through, but to just keep sharing your story with people and, and knowing that, you know, you can help people and make a difference is huge. And uh, Stanley Cup champ this year, who's it going to be? Oh, wow. I, you know, I was really leaning to a repeat with St. Louis, but they've kind of struggled lately. But I think they're going through that. They didn't hit that Stanley Cup champion hangover early the next season, meaning this season. I think they're hitting it now, and I think they'll pull out of it. So I really like them. I, you know, there's so many. That's the great thing about the, the playoffs. I mean, you could pick so many. I, I, I still like what Vegas is doing, even though they're not tearing it up like last year and the year before. They're in the hunt. So in the West, Dallas has come on too, and I like their goaltender, Bishop. He's good. So, yeah, big boy too. He's like seven feet on skates. Yeah. But you got to look at the teams like Boston for sure. They're going to be there in the end. And, you know, Tampa or Boston out of the East, I think you got to look at and Pittsburgh's making moves now too. I mean, everybody's, that's the great thing about the, we talked about the game today's game. There's just so much parody. I mean, anybody that makes the playoffs can look at a Stanley cup, LA Kings. Yeah. They, they squeaked in on the last spot and, and, and went on a run and won the cup. They didn't lose. I don't, they didn't lose a game on the road. Yeah, it could be. In the, in the playoffs, I think that year when they won it, it was something like that. Like, it was crazy. But, and, and now, like you said, it used to always, like, fall on the West. You'd be like, okay, a West Coast team is going to win this thing. They dominate. But Boston every year out of the East, Washington now. And they just – Washington just signed uh, Kovalchuk today. Yeah, yeah. And he, like, revived his career over the last few weeks in Montreal. Look out for uh, Colorado, too. Oh, Colorado, yeah. I saw them live against the uh, Leafs. Yeah. That defenseman, uh, Makar. Yeah. Oh, my God. And Nathan McKinnon was like – Yeah, I've seen him in life. ahead of everybody else. Yeah, I go to a mental health thing. Uh, last year, they flew me and my wife in. And Friday night, we did a military night. And, uh, you know, we're big military supporters uh, because of the PTSD and, and that and our veterans. And then on Sunday, it was a mental health day and we, it was an afternoon game and we were there and we gave a talk as well. And, and, you know, people often forget I'm a Quebec Nordique, which is a Colorado avalanche now, you know, that's where they moved from was Quebec. So I do have a little bit of an affiliation with them. I go to Washington a couple of times a year for wounded warriors and, and some things like that. And having played for the Caps and obviously uh, the Nordiques, which is now the Colorado Avalanche. But, you know, it, it's nice that they, I, like I mentioned, I went to Buffalo a month ago for a 90s night where they had all the guys that ever played for the team in the 90s, if they could make it. And, uh, yeah, it, it's cool to be still that part of it and seeing old friends and teammates. You played with some cool, like like you said, LaFontaine. McGillney was on his way in, too, when you were there. I, I, when McGillney came from Russia, I was in Buffalo. He was my roommate. He couldn't speak English. and. So I was his first roommate coming over here. Did you know how good that guy was going to be? No, no. I had no idea. I mean, he comes over. He's an unknown from Russia. I mean, we had no idea. Yeah. And he was unbelievable. When he won the Leafs got him, he was so good. A lot of people forget, too. He had a real fear of flying. It was bad. And so did Gretzky. Gretzky did hypnotism to get through his. But uh, McGillney, I remember we were going to St. Louis and then I think to Washington on a road trip. And he took a limo from Buffalo to St. Louis played and then took the limo to Washington and then back to Buffalo. I mean, that's how afraid of flying he was. Wow. People think athletes, they put on the cape and we're superhuman. No, we all got our own issues and fears and problems. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's tough too. Yeah. And all that travel. And if you don't like flying and you, and even in the minors, right? Like you're, you're taking that bus, like some of your bus trips are like 10, 12. (laughs) Well, when I played junior hockey back, yeah, I mean, this they don't do it like that anymore, but I played in the Western League, and we went on a, a road trip. It was 26 days, all by bus. We just hit every town on on, on the circuit. And I, there was a couple fights on the bus, you know. We're eating fast food back then. and It's got to be fun, though, in a way. Oh, sure it was. I mean, you're too young to know any better, and uh, they're treated much, much better now. But I remember 
playing in the minor in the American League my f- first year. And uh, the guys from the Ontario League and the Quebec League, we had like a six-hour bus ride to Halifax or something from Fredericton. And guys are going, oh, my God, six hours. They're from the east. They're used to, you know, two, three hours tops. And out west, we're used to, you know, our closest team was three hours. And then after that, everything was six to eight hours away. So we knew what it was like to live on the bus. But guys on the west on that team in Fredericton were going, what are they whining about? This is not as a piece of cake. <laughs> Times have changed. It's crazy. Yeah, they have. Oh man. Well, I mean, I could sit here all day and talk about you know, mental health stuff and hockey with you. It's been unbelievable chatting with you. So I appreciate that. Well, say hi to Landsberg for me. I will. You're a good guy. Yeah. I think you spoke at one of his sick, not weak events. Yeah. It was in Peterborough. There was myself, Haley Wickenheiser, Theo Fleury, Michael, of course, spoke, and I didn't know Theo very well. He had a rental car, and we drove from Peterborough to uh, Toronto. The, I think it was the next day to the airport, and I had you know three hours with him to uh, get to know him. It was pretty pretty interesting. Uh, uh, he's had a wild ride too. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to chatting with him in March. Uh, he's another one. I just reached out to him. He said, "Yeah, sure, whatever you need." Yeah, uh, it's it's pretty neat. Yeah, when you were at the Panthers. Were you with um, Mike Keenan? Yeah. What was he like? Because there was so much. St- I listened to that Spit and Chicklets podcast, one of my favorite. They talk about him constantly. Yeah. How good of a well, coach was that guy, though? You know, he was not an X and O guy. Very simple. He was definitely a motivator. Some players loved him. Some hated him. I had an experience with him. I was hired, and it was like early in the season, end of October. And Luongo was our, our goalie. We didn't have a very good team, so Luongo had to play on his head every every night to, for us to have a sniff. And uh, he had a game. It wasn't his best game. And I remember Keenan going, do you talk to your goalie? you talk to your goalie? And I said, yeah, it's my job. Of course I'll talk to him. And next day, do you talk to your goalie? Yeah, I talked to him after the game, and we sat down for a few minutes this morning already. Next day, we're playing, and it was we were down after the first period two to one and Luong it wasn't his fault or anything he looked sharp and Keenan just blasted me what did you talk to your fucking goalie I lost it and I said F you Mike you worry about goddamn team I'll worry about so my phone rings at about oh one in the morning and I think oh oh I'm fired because I really stood up to him and uh, we shot the breeze for about 20 minutes he asked me about the game asked me what I thought about Luongo and he goes, okay, I'll see you at practice tomorrow. I was like, wow, that was weird. Next day in practice, he calls me in the office, and I'm still wondering, eh, maybe I'm getting fired. I don't know. And he says, sit down. I want to look at this power play with you. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, Mike, I'm the goalie coach, not the assistant coach. And he goes, no, no, I want a goalie's feedback on this. So anyways, long story short, I ended up being Mike's right-hand man after that. Very cool. He, he, he treated me golden. And I, I wonder, I heard he tests people. And I was wondering if that was my test to see if I had any spine, uh, you know, if I'd cave into them or tuck my tail between my legs or, or what. And I guess he figured I had the character that he liked. And I remember uh, later that season, like I said, we had a bad team. We were in Washington. We lost 10 to 2. And we flew to New Jersey right after the game. We get in the hotel. It's about midnight, short flight. And, uh, he goes, goalie, he, he called me goalie, go goalie, meet me in the lobby 10 minutes. It's like midnight. I'm like, all right. So we get down there, we go to this little pub and we didn't talk about the game or nothing. We just sat there and had a few beers and he just needed somebody that could trust to blow steam off with, you know, in Florida, him and his wife would have me over to eat quite often because I was on my own back then. And we just had a great working relationship and friendship. After that incident, he never, ever asked me about the goalies again. He let me handle it 100%. He trusted me. So, But I heard, too, through other people and players that you stand up to him. You really like that. But I also heard of guys that stood up to him, and they were traded the next day. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you hear different, like just being a fan, you hear all kinds of stories. Ken Hitchcock was another one I've heard a bunch. Like He just loves when guys chirp him and stuff like that oh yeah yeah and i i grew up with hitch you know like he he's older than me but uh yeah i've known hitch since i was a boy didn't you get your first pair of skates oh yeah hitch took care of me we didn't have much money and he worked at a sporting goods uh place so he always tried to get secondhand stuff for me and good real cheap and yeah hitch he's still a good friend uh and you you grew up with kelly rudy no 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kelly and I, we're still in touch. His daughter has, you know, publicly, and Kelly too, about her uh, with OCD and, and some issues. And I think she does some speaking now too. So, yeah. Uh, I remember Kelly reaching out to me years ago about his daughter. I was with the Flames then working and he was doing the broadcasting and, you know, he was telling me about his daughter and everything. And I met his daughter and we join up quick when we got something in common like mental illness. But yeah, another guy that I'd known Corey Hirsch more through coaching. He coached, uh, he was goalie coach in St. Louis. And I remember him a couple years prior saying, I, just something in his tone. And he says, we got to talk. We're going to talk. One day you're going to see. And he said, not now, not now. I'm not ready. And then he came out with a Players Tribune article. And, uh, you know, he came out with his struggles with mental illness. And we've tried to collaborate on a couple things, you know, fundraisers and things like that. So, you know, it's funny in a way I feel like uh, I'm kind of one of the first prominent NHL players to come out, not just with something like addiction, but come out saying, hey, you know, I, I got mental illness. I can't think of anybody else. It probably is, but I, I think I've been, well, Theo, Theo was, yep. Uh, yep. you know, he came out uh, before me. And after that, I'm not sure if I can think of anybody. Yeah. And, and I mean, different times, but for you, yeah, like your time, like your era, I mean, you talked about it a bit early on. It was definitely, you're probably one of the first. Yeah. Hirsch, he's on my list of people to uh, reach out to, to try and uh, come on here. But uh, again, thank you so much. And I hope we can talk again soon. All right, right. Thank you. Right. Take care. You. you bet. That's it for me on Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Clint Malarchuk. Thank you for joining us today on the Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. If you know someone who can benefit from being part of our community, share this episode with them so they too can continue to grow and sharpen their mental edge. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you like to listen. We would love to hear from you. Connect with us at mentaledge.ca. And until next time, remember, healthy mind, healthy life.